Ground Control, the Major Tom. Today we have Bianca Grace. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. So can you start out just by kind of giving your background of who you are and what you do? Yes. So I am, it's a long story, but I think it's important to say, actually, um, I'm somebody that worked in the field of exercise science and dance and loved performing and all sorts of cool stuff, always with the body at first and then moved into yoga. I taught yoga for like 12 years, got super into all the yogic arts, the philosophy, had a studio, and I then evolved into, and I called it evolution because I was like mind, spirit, or body, spirit, and then mind, right? And I wanted to cover all the bases, and I knew yoga wasn't quite kind of getting me there to understand the mind. So that's that's who I am. I'm a little bit of everything, but I bring it now into more of a psychodynamic, psychoanalytic um, training that I've done. And I basically am evolving one more time um, into wanting to teach and wanting to share this information that basically I've accumulated a lot of experiences and a lot of understanding over time, not just from what I, why I say all of that is not just from studying academically at a school and then having clinical experience. I'm, you know, I'm, I really try to bring who I am as a person to the table. So I am a psychotherapist, but also Bianca, who has had a lot of experiences and continues to want to grow. And I find my, my most important thing that can, continues to drive me is to see if how many people I can help. Um, and it's always been growing and expanding from class, from one-on-one to classes, to groups, to now I'm hoping an even larger community online. Yeah. I mean, the internet really changed the game for all of that. Cause now, especially with something like TikTok, I've talked about TikTok a million times on the show. That's where I found you at. Mm -hmm. Um, TikTok is incredibly interesting because there's such a wide range. There's people like you on there. And then there's people who are smashing pickles with their feet, you right. know? So there, there's a lot going on on there. Um, but I, I think like we were, we were talking before we started up, like COVID really opened up the conversation on mental health. Right. It, it, huge. We were, to, and I think that's the whole point is that it, that's when I was prompted as my schedule filled up and I had no more room, but people were looking at my Instagrams and things like this saying, the world needs this. We need more of this. This is what we need right now is emotional education or, you know, psychological insight, not just fix it, but understand it because everybody was really struggling with understanding what they were facing. Cause we've been on a world of denial and distractions, you know, it, it that's that's something that COVID had, you know, came to a complete halt. So, what is your uh, like your clinical background that you mentioned before? The clinical background is so I I have a graduate degree in psychoanalysis, probably from the only place in the country you can do that. So I feel actually really happy about that and like proud because psychoanalysis to me is uh, the grandmother grandfather the the backbone of psychology really trying to understand the mind at a deep unconscious level so in the way that they teach is all experiential 
So my entire schooling was an experience in and of itself, like a, almost like a clinical experience to go to school, mm. academic. And then I did my licensing, which is you know standard. You have to be, um, you know, obviously work in the hospitals and and as like more as a social worker and things like that. So my my experience is diverse, but my whole point was to get to private practice so I could start doing more of the, the psychodynamic, psychoanalytic work with people. And that's that's my background. So I've been doing that since 2016. But again, I had my studio for four years and was working with people one-on-one. -on -one. Then my yoga studio and then also worked with people one-on-one, -on -one, you know, as a trainer. So I I've just been working with people and their experiences for so long. I, I could say you know, probably a hairdresser has some experience of listening to people and trying to understand them. And, you know, so Absolutely. I, right. So I just, I, I kept on, I wanted to really be qualified to help people. So I did that extra step. So one thing I, I wanted to talk to you about today, and we were kind of emailing about this is finding a therapist is something that can be very overwhelming Mm -hmm. Um, like you mentioned the licensing thing. So what is your license? The, my license is an LMHC. So license every, and every state has something different. Okay. So you can be in, this is where actually, if you want to be a therapist or social worker, it's confusing in and of itself to figure out what is offered to you at what level, or are you going to be a psychiatrist or a clinical psychologist or a research, you know, PhD that just does the more of the research aspect of things. So there are so many paths you can go down. It, I like to say, even for like, so a colleague, I would inform a colleague to say, who do you enjoy working with and what do you enjoy doing? Why are you getting into this? And if you answer that, oh, I really love working with kids or I love the research aspect and I think I have this experiment in mind. So it depends. And then I would say to them, okay, this would be more, the most appropriate path. So the licensing part is a very, like it's thousands of hours of supervision, of, of clinical work, supervision, school, and writing it all off in the end, like meaning everybody signs off on it. And then you do an exam. That's pretty standard for every, everybody that's licensed. I asked that question because when you're, when you just go on Google and you're scrolling through, you see all these letters next to someone's name. Yeah. So it's different from state to state you were saying. Yeah. So sometimes there's an LMFT. I mean, I see, I can't go through them all, but the <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of them. So, right. But what, what I would say is if you're, but these people should, if you're scrolling through, Again, I would ask the person that's looking for somebody, not necessarily to look at the letters, but to ask, I'd ask them, what are you looking for? Well, I'm, I'm looking for somebody to help me with my anxiety specifically. I have this phobia with this or I have attacks when I do that. Oh, okay. Well, that's definitely somebody that works with that very specifically, maybe CBT or behavioral health or exposure therapy. Like, there's something that I can guide them to based on what they're looking for. I wouldn't ever just say like, oh, well, then that's a, a mental health counselor. So it really, you have to kind of like see the same kind of principle is you have to know what you're looking for. If it's run of the mill though, maybe for like 
you know, I'm just suffering from depression and intrusive thoughts or, you know, I have a lot of relationship problems, a lot of people are going to be able to help you out with that. Meaning that you can just search and, and by the way, not to try to plug psychology today, but that's the only directory for us. That's like the mainstay. It's like our Google. If you put in who you're, you know, what, what your area is and what you're looking for, like specifically you do a good search, you're going to find people that went through and, and made sure that if that's their specialty, that they'll show up for you. So when you're trying to find a therapist, let's say you go to one, you don't really feel like you're connecting with them. There it is. Yeah. What, what do you do? Like what advice would you give people? So I think that that's the most important question. I think you can, you know, search for pipes in the way that I'm saying, like really filter it down, but really even still, and, and thinking about you asking me this question, I think the most important part of the connection is feeling understood. And you're going to make the most progress. Like, do you feel understood by the therapist in front of you? Do, do you feel understood by the way they wrote their bio? Do you connect with them? Do you, you know, that's the feeling you have, at least for me, that's been the most important part. If, and, and if I, you know, can connect to understanding where they're coming from, it can't be false. What, you know, what we do when we do one-on-one -on -one work is, is really connect with the individual and share our mental space with them and go in and out of, of that state. I mean, it's something that we really want to be able to connect and resonate. So I find that people go, oh, you know, I had a therapist, they didn't really help, you know, and, and I'm like, well, were you looking for that connection? And don't give up on yourself because, you know, meaning like maybe it didn't work one time and that didn't work out and that felt discouraging because they were giving you yoga exercises instead of understanding you. Okay, well, yeah. that's just not the right person. So we keep going. Yeah, it's it's a I feel like a, a trial and error process with anything in life. You know, I, I think therapy is is so important um for kind of going back to the scene of the crime. You know, I like my own personal life, everybody has their own shit that they have to deal with throughout life. Cool. Everybody has a hand that they're dealt. Um and there was a couple therapists that I've had throughout my life where there was some that were good and I felt that connection to that you're describing and then others and this is not a knock to, to them at all it just felt like we were both kind of there you know what I mean like there wasn't any real I didn't feel understood anytime I tried to open up but it's kind of like you're saying though you just you got to try again like it, it, it's not therapy itself it might just be this situation is right. not the right fit for you absolutely that's, yeah, in generalizations, right? It's therapy, it's not the person. Or like, is that's kind of one of these thinking habits that we need to, you know, continue to mature out of because that's, it. the therapist is just one person. And and still, you know, and I wanted to say, even within a, a therapy that you feel understood in or with another person that you feel understood with, I still think that you should have, you know, freedom to figure out what works for you as, you know, your language, how you talk. It's not about, 
you know, this is another aspect of this might be more of a nuance, but it's not about editing your thoughts, fixing you, telling you what to do. You might, you're probably going to come up with the best strategy for coping, for having that conversation, for doing something that's helpful to you. And, and I think that that's something, again, where you work as a team with someone instead of default to that person telling you, how do I do it? How do I do it? Like, careful. You know, you're the one who you want to have somebody that's also going to work to empower you to think for yourself. More like a co-pilot as opposed to you being a passenger. Right. Right. So I, I also find that really helpful as far as instead of having this kind of, because I find this another thing, you can feel really understood by somebody and then they just kind of become like that soft, you know, cushion that you fall into once a week. And that doesn't, you know, so you gotta, there's, there is a little bit of something about making sure that you're staying in a little bit of a, a, a relationship. Yes. Where there's a co-piloting and some frustration. So one of your specialties that you kind of talk about is codependency. Right. What is codependency? Um, that's a great question. Um, Cause I don't see, this is the thing is that the definition of it has, um, shifted over time from something that like PTSD was studied um, in World, World War, you know, this and that. And so it's it was something that was really attached to the study of war victims. Codependency was studied in attachment to trying to study uh, alcoholism, addiction. And then what people started realizing is that the people that were taking care of the person that was addicted to alcohol or drugs also exhibited some really interesting symptoms and as far as their dynamic with them and denial and how they were enabling and um, and their codependency. So they were the dependent, the addict is the dependent one and then there's the codependent that's enabling the addiction, right? And a lot of times that, that they also found that when, you know, so codependency is a relational thing. They found that even when one person gets better, the other person stays needing some very interesting form of re relationship, an interesting meaning that it, it was based on taking care of the other, fixing the other, helping the other, being you know somebody that had to do it solely. So anyway, I think Al-Anon does a really great job, but then you know as far as really helping people through what they have to, to face in order to heal themselves after, um, work uh, uh, helping somebody like this for a long time, but the definition has like expanded huge beyond that. Now we see basically that all of these symptoms, like, and we call them symptoms, but like character traits, maybe, or mindsets, or ways that people relate dynamics between you and another person, people pleasing, putting others in front of you, um, being conflict avoidance. Um, controlling behaviors, you know, all of these things are stemming from a, a way that the dynamic of the family actually functioned a long time ago. So what we're, what we're finding is that boys and I mean, men, women, and, and the, there's a, because I'm talking on and on, I can't remember her name right now, but it will come to me, of course, um, she said, you know, she even was able to, she's like the, the godmother of codependency, was able to really name that all these helping services 
type of fields, my field. I mean, I've suffered from codependency massively and went through, and that was another thing was that, is that what we are, so it's in society, it's in our culture, it's in our schooling, it's in our family to always think about ourselves from the outside in. What can I do for the reward? What can I do for the love? What can I do for the result? Not who am I? My, I'm an authentic being. I'm good enough that somebody's validating me. We're running around kind of like empty vessels, figuring out how to fill everybody's cup up so we get a pat on the back. Versus inside out. Right. Versus inside out. And there's a lot of, and so that's how I define it. Everyone has. So it's it's basically a relational style and understanding of self that's reversed. It's from the outside in, not the inside out. Scientifically speaking, um, this is something I'm actually curious about. Maybe it's something you know about. Scientifically, like how does that affect someone's brain chemistry? Well, I think it reverse wires everything. When we talk talk about what uh, fires together, wires together, when I work with somebody with, you know, really strong codependent tendencies, they will tend to, um, again, have a, yeah, I mean, scientifically speaking, what we understand about, you know, and I think psychoanalysis is a science as far as masochism is concerned, or, you know, sacrificing yourself or being the martyr. Well, now we have the pleasure principle reversed. You know, now I take pleasure in sacrificing myself for your gain. And that's, and that's what I keep on. I was like, just really seems like A was supposed to be wired to B and A is wired to D. You know, like I kept on following people's, you know, the way that they would talk and find that all of our wiring is mixed up when really we know a healthy mind would, and healthy meaning one without conflicts, because you clearly wouldn't be sitting in front of me, right, has this, okay, you know, there is some maybe mutual, I'm not even talking about just being like, oh, gain just for me, but mutuality to why I do what I do, not pure sacrifice and allowing myself to stay in fantasies of punishment. And men do that a lot. So I was just going to go ahead and put that one out there. Yeah. Well, another thing that you, you talk about in your videos is you kind of talk about uh, men being, like, societally speaking, we have to be stoic, emotionless, and just kind of take it on the chin. And you were saying how that's really cultural, and especially in terms of women and how women are um, – looking for a sensitive guy, but what you said that I thought was interesting is that they're looking for a guy to listen to their feelings. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> a lot of times. So can you expand a little bit more on that? Like, why do you think that is? Well, I, I think that, so to kind of go back to the, the way that boys are treated in a family, you'll see that there's a lot of blame projected on them They can be more rambunctious, more aggressive, more whatever. I I really don't like that boys have now been termed ADHD. I think they're distractible. I think that they're always looking for new things, that they're very curious. Um, And their minds work different. 
But so, I mean, there is a lot of, it's easy to where the girl is, is a, more agreeable possibly or more relaxed or whatever, you know, she's not being blamed. So he gets, he gets a lot of blame. He's like the container for a lot of blame and shame and name calling when he's a kid and, and doesn't necessarily see that with his sister, you know, or somebody that is maybe older in the family. So there's, there is something about, again, the way that they start to understand themselves emotionally or boys understand themselves emotionally is that I can't have this feeling. It's going to make mom scary mad or dad really upset with me. And then she's going to get me in trouble. So I'm going to avoid all that by pulling this in, being quiet and going somewhere, like doing whatever coping mechanism they have to in order to not have that happen. And sometimes when it does, again, that really imprints upon them that they need, and they're very, then that also puts all the responsibility on the child to modulate their emotions without understanding them first. 100%. Yeah, that's something that I had really faced in my life where I was so walled off emotionally by my mid twenties. I wasn't even aware that I had them because they were so buried down deep in there. And then I got to a point to where I was in so much emotional pain that I couldn't avoid it. And I couldn't recognize what the feelings were that were causing it. There was, there was a point where every single day I would sit in my car and cry to Desperado by the Eagles. That's one release. Yeah. 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 And you know, therapy and, and other things like that really helped me kind of get through that. But I had, um, you know, me, me and my mom, we, we did not have a good relationship growing up. She's out of my life now is best for both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had so much trouble relating to women in my twenties. I, I was, um, I, I, my intentions were always good, but I just didn't know, like when, in my early twenties, I was really like that codependent puppy dog that I do something wrong. Mm-hmm. And then by the time I was in my, my mid twenties, I, I was on Tinder Vietnam. <laughs> so it was like, the opposite to where I just kept every single thought and emotion I had a secret because yeah. it was like I was waiting in the jungle to be discovered, you know, taken by the enemy. Yeah. So I saw women as, uh, as an enemy and I, I did not understand how to relate to them. And like with anything with dating, there's, there's a good, the bad and the ugly, and you have to be able to identify that. Um, so that was another thing I kind of wanted to chat with you about, uh, because it's two very like different experiences. I imagine being on the dating apps, the dating apps are the norm, right? That's what it is. And I feel like different age groups also utilize it in a different way. If that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. I, I mean, and I think, well, I kind of uh, just to kind of say, and then I, I will jump to the the dating thing. But what you were what you're saying about your the way that you relate to women, even though it's not mom, mom is a symbol. Yes, one hundred percent. That you're reacting to in a, in your unconscious, right? So that's yeah. I think that that's really important to kind of highlight for men because when they get into relationships with people that remind them of or you know, that have, they have an experience where they really can't get past something with this person. 
then it's really a, a point that they have to rework that symbol. They have to remap, you know, is that mom or is, am I really taking this person seriously and see them for who they are? You know, meaning did I just walk into a relationship with somebody similar, hoping to master this trauma? Or is this person just kind of triggering me on this side and I need to remap out who this person is to me. And I call it drawing the map. Actually, Dr. Daniel Siegel, if I just want to like draw his work, his books, everything that he says, I think is amazing when we talk about attachment style and everything. But it's, I really like his, his idea of drawing new maps, expanding your map, mental map of somebody in your mind, because how you think of someone, are they threatening? Are they evil? Are they bad? Are they mean? You know, you're not going to be able to approach them. Maybe that was mom, and this person has a little bit of that, but they don't have that much. But because they have a little, it's blown out of proportion, and you can't seem to get past the need to have a conversation. So you stay yes. in the container. So Yeah, no, I think for me, that's definitely what the situation was. And I had to do a lot of work to even get to the point where I was ready to like date again. Yeah. You know, I had I had to figure out what it was about myself that I kept bringing to these relationships. I had to go back to the scene of the crime, basically, and, and discover what what crimes had been committed f- ad- that made me a victim. And I had to fix them. That way, I wasn't a nightmare to deal with in relationships. Yeah. But that, I think that's exactly what I do. When somebody comes to me after a breakup, I'm like, okay, well, we're going to pull out the journals. We're going to see where you were at. We're going to try to understand it because there's a lot of lessons there, especially now that you're out of it, that we can become more objective about what you needed to learn from that situation. So, and, and I think going into dating, like it, to pivot towards dating apps and what people are looking for there. We have to be really careful because the mind, if we're not, if we haven't done our work, And we're not really set. We've not like, this is the intention. I'm going to be on this dating app for this reason. If we haven't done any, like, how am I going to show up in a relationship? What am I really looking for? What am I? And and there's no judgment. I don't care what you're looking for. Just make sure that you know what you, you know, where you're coming from, from the past relationships, what you're looking for now and write it down. You really do want to like, like crystallize what you're doing, because again, a lot of people are doing this. It's a distraction. My unconscious, you know, I get addicted to the the scrolling of it. And I then start to fill in the blank because I haven't done the work with unconscious fantasies that are tied to my childhood. Oh, it's a disaster, right, honey? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. What do you mean by unconscious fantasies? So unconscious fantasy and fantasy doesn't mean like uh, <clears throat> anything other than a, it, it, I don't use it in the, the kind of the mod, whatever, the, the general sense. I use it more clinically. It is a, a, an elaboration in the mind as far as like what I wanted from a parent. I wanted love and I, and I see them walking to me and, and I feel like the special one now instead of stepdad you know, they see me and this is what, you know, you're trying to master your trauma and usually it happens in the mind. I call it as a fantasy. Yes. You don't, right. And it, it, you don't really aren't really perceiving it necessarily until again, you're, you've walked into it and you're burned. Well, I think too, you know, I, I, 
maybe a lot of people can relate to this. Uh, when you try and get into a relationship, like, especially when I was young, the idea of falling in love, I was more apt to fall in love with the idea of a person versus who the person actually was. Yes. That I I can say it better. I I ask men all the time that I work with, you know, what attracted you to that woman? And they told me about an idea, an idea of her, you know, but though the idea can include things like loving me, being lovable, lovable. I just wanted to be loved. Ooh, you're going to, you know, that's, that's so vulnerable. That's so much about the past. But at the same time, you've just handed that over to somebody who is idealizing you for two seconds. Well, you're idealizing another human being too. Mm -hmm. And human beings, they have a full spectrum and they can disappoint whether they mean to or not. And I found that those fights would always happen, like arguments stem from those moments of the veil dropping for a second and you see something that you don't like and then that's when the uh, the butting heads happens or when the communication breakdown happens. Right. That's absolutely it. And that's like after the honeymoon's over kind of thing. The, the, like the idealization too is another kind of weaving together of a fantasy in front of your eyes. And then it starts to, yeah, the disillusionment process is, is startling. It's, it's really frustrating. It's disappointing. But at the same time, it was based on expectations. Like you said, how do we idolize a human being that's so out of context of reality that person's going to have? Wouldn't it be kind of cool to celebrate both aspects of them? Like, oh, wow, that's really annoying. I, you know, I'm not sure how I'm going to deal with that. Like, we just don't seem to be able to handle like what is really going on in front of us. I think that we can see so many aspects that are red flags. But this thing in front of us. We cover our eyes, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. Right. So we can get into this bond with people and then start to really feel offended by it. And see the other way around. Yeah. Like as a guy in, in the dating world now, it's like, I want someone to like actually like me for me, like your traits. That's what you want someone to like, like your, your traits or whatever. Um, and then also, I think the other side of that is your flaws have to be accepted and you also have to accept flaws too. I feel like that's really where success and failure hinges in a relationship, that and communication. Yeah, that's what I was trying to yeah, say earlier is like, you know, accepting flaws and accepting that, you know, somebody isn't the perfect match in the beginning. Like, why does it have to, you know, be... <laughs> why does it have to be that way in order for us to commit to someone or be with someone? I I feel like it's, it's a massive fear of, you know, vulnerability. We have to just kind of assume everything is, is very smooth. There's no, there's no rough edges. And, and that's something again, that is a lot of times because of trauma, a lot of times because of not really being able to trust before. So we have to, I, you know, and two, they also talk about falling in love and the chemicals that come out when you have great chemistry or you find somebody that you're really attracted to. That can be a mini uh, psychotic break, but it's totally not. Like, 
psychosis and love psychosis are quite you know quite different but you're you become detached from reality you kind of go into this bubble this space where that's all that you can think about and that's fine i keep saying to people like you know that's really okay i don't think that you can control that and that feels great but if you're addicted to it and you're going to go try to find it all over and over again or if you know, you're not allowing yourself to be in that space, but that space is special in and of itself. But that doesn't mean that you can't, because you've done the work, at least try to start communicating right away. I, I, I think you can still have that, that falling for one another kind of feeling that you really can't control, but not regress emotionally or psychologically into some sort of bonding, you know, I'm scared to be vulnerable unless I'm hundred percent with them all the time or idealizing them. So do you see what I'm kind of saying? It's, it Absolutely. is complicated, right? It's. Well, I think um, to get off topic, but it's still on topic. My opinion, the greatest love song ever written is today. I started loving you again by Merle Haggard. Do you know that song? Yeah, that's awesome. Because it is, I think, a, a true love song. I think if you if you really have a loving, emotional bond and connection with someone, it you're going to fall in and out of love with them over the course of years. Sometimes you're just going to be, it is going to be like the day-to-day. You know what I mean? You're going to be out of the honeymoon phase. And you have to work to A, keep that alive or keep that prevalent. You know, I, I think that's the other thing that, like with millennials and, and Gen Z when, in terms of dating, and maybe this is just because of like lived experience that people don't know, you know what I mean? But I, I think it's something that you really have to work work at. It, it's like compromise and negotiation um, and communication. It's, it's not something that's clear cut because you're taking two human beings and tr- trying to have a life together and get to the same spot. Um, and how rare is it that one human being can compromise and negotiate and get to one spot for themselves? Right, right. But, you know, it's really, what's really cool is when you actually can with two people, it's really powerful. But I think you you do have to go into these relationships understanding, because I find even beyond, you know, millennials and Gen Z, that if you get into a relationship where your emotions have been stifled for so long, a lot of guys are like, and... I don't know that women say this as much, but they don't want to go through the emotional labor. I call it. It's work. Like and you painful. have to, yeah, and you have to want to grow, right? You're going to have to also not only you know communicate, negotiate, but I can't let you sit there and do that thing. And I don't want to hassle you, but it's important that you're growing and I'm growing. I see a lot of people also. Oh, I'm going to go and like grow in my own trajectory, and this person stays the way they are and then they kind of grow apart and I'm like wait a second why why is this happening in this relationship why aren't you growing together so I I also think like it's really awesome to be with somebody that actually has the same mindset that you do and wants to be your partner in developing further because a relationship can really make both people better if they're both on board with that if they're not and somebody's always pulling the other person along or going off it it's it becomes super super frustrating well i wonder how much of our ideas of relationships are from 
our culture too. You know what I mean? Like the movies, TV, like all these different things. Like there's an, to talk about idealization a little bit more, I think like romantic comedies, it's like a, uh, emotional porn for women in a lot of ways. And I'm not trying to knock that as a genre. There's some romantic comedies that I like as movies, but, um, there's this great movie that speaking of, uh, it's called, it's called something Don Juan. Have you ever seen it before? It's, it's with, uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt and he's a porn addict and Scarlett Johansson is like his girlfriend. And she's like a love and like romantic fantasy addict. Mm -hmm. And it shows like their eyes at different times in the movie. Like when he's watching porn, his eyes are just like all lit up and the dopamine is just zinging and they go to a romantic comedy and it's doing that for her. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, these genres, but I agree. I, and I think that this is with what happens in dating and what we're talking about the dating apps too, is that I have a romantic idea of a man, not a realistic one. And I'm looking for somebody to, you know, with, cause I watched Disney films for my entire childhood and that yep. was able to really program me into a Cinderella story, sleeping beauty story whatever it is. And now I'm, I'm literally thinking because what my parents didn't give me a good uh, example. When you don't have also a good example of like authority of, you know, respect, intimacy, uh, intimacy, any of these things, you have to look to movies, culture, religion, all sorts of things that are there for you to kind of gaze at and use your imagination. Basically kids just kind of, and you know, ba- interpret this into oh, that's easy to understand. That's going to be me, you know. So that's a, also an escape for them. But it's happening on on. I mean, I say I keep on saying this because you're looking at a person instead of saying I have no idea who this person is. It's kind of cool. Maybe I'll interact with them and meet them right away. People spend so much time texting each other and staying in some sort of again virtual relationship. Like, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. Yeah, well, it's it's important, too, because you might, like, have a good vibe texting someone and then meet them in person, and then it's just you have no chemistry, and there might not be anything even wrong with the other person. Right, right. But there's, there's just no chemistry there. I think for so long, I was, um, I was just trying to find something that didn't exist. You know what I mean? That just wasn't realistic. It was like searching for Bigfoot. I was searching for, for this unrealistic version of, of love. And I, I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast in the past where I think romantic love to a certain degree, it should be conditional. Like that both people are showing up in the relationship and trying to do right by a themselves because it all starts with that and then be the other person. Yeah. I think it's so important. There, there, there's no real way of, of avoiding it. And of course, like now that I'm 30, I have friends that have been mm-hmm. married, divorced and married again, and they're figuring it out and there, there's not anything wrong with that. But it's also interesting too, that I think a lot of people are waiting until they get older now to get married and have kids. And I think that's a wise decision. It is if they're doing it to like, to get to know people. I still wonder, you know, if they're, if they're intentional, I, I had a, 
a conversation with Matt Pfeiffer about the stages of a relationship, actually, because I thought just like what you were saying, you know, the Mary Haggard song and all of this, it's like, you know, love is mature love has cycles too. And you want to go through like the getting to know you exciting phase and some of that, but you, we want to also go through a doubting phase without being on top of the person necessarily, because during the doubting phase, it could really destroy the relationship and then you're going to go through it. You're going to start, you know, like as the commitment really starts to, it, as they really are starting to occupy real estate in your mind and in your behavior in your life, like meaning that you're really sharing a space with someone now you're in a committed relationship. That's all those little things that you, that you're like, Oh, I, you're that annoys me or that's an issue or why aren't you working on this? become like hyper, you know, overdetermined. They become real problems. And what you're going to have to do is during, that's your growth phase. There's frustration. So what are you going to do? You're going to scream and yell a little maybe, but you better be able to talk and communicate and, and start to do all of the things that you're talking about to show up for each other in a way that makes sense. Because if you can't get through the doubting phase and you're married, now, oh, okay, you know what I'll do? I, I'll, I'll get her pregnant. She'll, she'll like the baby. You know, men always want to escalate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me get myself in deeper, you know, instead of go, wow, this is really difficult, you know? So what exactly is the doubting phase? It's just that. It is after the honeymoon's over, the disillusionment phase, and you start to doubt, can I really live with this person the rest of my life? Is this really the person I want to be with? Am, am I committing to the, you know, like you start to doubt, I really don't like the way that they do this, and that really inhibits me this way. You also start to feel like maybe even, it depends on the relationship, you know, what it is that what that it person's is, yeah. kind of whatever they're impinging on you. Oh, they always get up at 6 a.m. and you like to get up at eight. You know, can I really do this the rest of my, you know, you like all the little things that you've compromised, that you've kind of, you've been all right with, you've been coping with. Now I call that the phase of like having to work through all of those things and see really like bring them down to size. To compromise and also to notice what your bullshit is in that situation and how you're reacting to them getting mad about getting up early or whatever. Yes. Yes, that's absolutely 100%. It's not right. And some some women can definitely, I notice women more take, bring their husbands to or boyfriends to therapy during the doubting phase and say, fix it. And I'm like, no, it's not about that. It, this is about, do you see what your part is and their part is? And now we got to figure this out and come up with, a, again, another, you know, Siegelism, Daniel Siegel is like, and have, find a we way. Like, how are we going to do this? It's not your way and it's not his way. It's how are you going to come up with a new way that's yours together? Well, life and, is, is all about negotiation. Yeah. Like every aspect of life, it's it's truly like you're selling yourself or you're having to negotiate in order to get what you want. Mm -hmm. And I think another thing I did for a long time was I was the kind of negotiator where it was my way or the highway. And that doesn't really work with other human beings. You have to compromise. Mm -hmm. You do. And it's you. I think there's something about that that says I, I, we you know, I don't know if you want to move into a little bit of attachment style. Yes. too. Right. And, and I think the attachment style, when we look at it, it's everybody's 
trying to think about this way too soon. If you're on the dating scene and you sit down at a speed dating thing and somebody asks you, what's your attachment style? I would say, you know, how is your day? You know, how are you doing? Yeah. Like, we ain't going there, honey. No, I, I agree. I feel like people are really jumping um, the gun on stuff like that. I think like from, from my experience, like getting, starting to date someone, it's like you go out on a few dates, you start to learn a little bit more about them. You don't want to discover anything too prematurely. Cause I think if you discover in any relationship, something too prematurely, you're going to be like, I'm out of here. This person's got problems. Well, guess what? We all got problems. Oh, big time. Yes. And you, and you're also, you're, you're making a process. And, and actually I, I put together a dating cheat sheet for the self-aware for your crew, like whoever wants to, you know, like sign up, whatever can get it free. Awesome. And I know. Right. And there is a lot of, but I wanted to mention that because there's, there's a lot about it. That's like descriptive, like behaviors that you'll notice, like how you see like either in you or the other person that need to be seen as, okay, this might be an issue, not this is narcissism or this is that I did put a narcissism at the end because I think that a lot of people with codependent tendencies can like walk like right into that trap if they aren't listening to their gut. And I think those things are more important than saying avoidant, anxious, this or that. And, and people both are asking you these things and then thinking something about you before they know you. And another person's thinking this about themselves before they even understand really that the point is not to stop at any of these attachment styles, but work towards secure attachment within yourself. We're not supposed to stay. Oh, I'm anxious attachment. Oh, okay. Well, let me just accept that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I feel like this is the danger of things like TikTok because it's like a lot of people in their, in their, again, to go back to like people in their Mm twenties, um, like one thing I see a lot of, uh, and I think this is so silly. Like I I've seen this from both men and women, but mainly it's, uh, there's certain there's certain women that'll post videos of like red flags and men based on the movies that they like, and it'll be like Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, which hey, they're some of my favorite directors, I will admit. Yeah. Um, but I think it's so silly because it's like something like that. Like we have this sanitized culture now, where you have to date someone who's exactly like you, likes the same things comes from the same culture or is empathetic that you come from a different culture, which is good. That should be the case. Mm-hmm. But, um, I don't know if you've really seen anything like that, like uh, looking around on the internet or anything along those lines. Well, I, I literally just, it was texting a friend today a little bit about social media because I'm brand new to it. So I'm actually, and I'm always looking at the comments and seeing what's going. I mean, I'm, I'm so being new, you know, I don't feel like I'm like a fish in water yet with all of this. And one of the things I'm noticing um, as I dry off every day and try not to get sucked into that is, is that it, it, social media apps have become a massive forum for groupthink. Yes. Groupthink group is not healthy. It's lowest common denominator. Yeah. And same, same. Yeah, lowest common denominator. Like who, whoever acts the worst in the group is what everyone says, okay, I get to. 
Yes, absolutely. Well, it's, it's so interesting to me too, because we think like as a society and as a culture in America, the general consensus is that we are so evolved and so smart, but we are not like, we are not any different from the people that were in ancient Rome. We're not any different from the people that were in Nazi Germany. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that there's people in America that it's like, Oh, we're under Nazi control or anything like that, but it's human nature. It is human nature. Like throughout like human history, the one constant that we've had, we've had a couple, mm-hmm. but one of the things is there's always these people in power that are trying to take tyrannical control of everyone. And mm-hmm. that is universal. There's never been a time where there's been human beings on this planet where that hasn't been happening. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that power, I always say it a little bit incorrectly, but I love it. Power corrupts absolutely, or absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah. Right? That, and, any, and so this is given power to a voice in some ways that have, has said, you know, everyone should want this. And this is, and so you can really, that's so powerful that I can put out, you know, flashy words and act like I know what I'm saying and get, wow, groups of people to get on board with me. And, and totally, we just feed off of each other, you know, in order to like create a movement. And I'm like, wow, but that has nothing to do with how your mind works or how how relationships function. So, well, it reveals a lot because it's like the most mentally unwell people in our society right now have all of the power, at least culturally speaking. Oh yeah. When it, when it comes to things like social media and dating apps, it's almost like a form of like social terrorism in in a weird way. Um, And it's just like, as someone who's still like young ish, I'm, I'm not old by any standard, mm-hmm. but it's interesting to kind of look around and take the temperature of the room. Cause I feel like most people probably feel the way that you and I feel about this, but for a long time, they didn't want to speak up because they were afraid. Yeah. Um, but I really feel like the tide is starting to turn now. One of the reasons being, uh, like Elon Musk buying Twitter. I don't know if you've been following that at all. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Well, Elon says like, I want the the far right and the far left to both be unhappy with Twitter and make the the eighty percent of people that are sane in the middle uh, like realize that social media can work for them. I th- I think social media is great. Don't get me wrong. I think at the end of the day, it's a tool like anything. Um, and it depends on how you use the tool. You could use a gun for self-defense or you could use it to walk into a Walmart and shoot a bunch of people up. So it just depends on the person. We have this immense power right now that no other human being in human history has ever had. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. And I think that anybody with a passion to lead though, that has the right ideas, I mean, meaning those that help to elevate people or inform them, this is that opportunity again, you know, but also to like how to use the gun could, could protect people, you know, I mean, that, that in some ways too, it's, it's always like, how do we use this? I mean, definitely. I love those words social is like the social media terrorism that's happening, but it's, it's a, 
what I was going to say was that you hit the nail on the head. We have not evolved as far as humans beings are concerned. Like that would take eons. I mean, really, we're technologically going to evolve our, you know, at some like at point. That's what we're really working on. And possibly that's the direction. But I think emotional evolution is possible. I think you know, not just intellectualism, but really people advancing emotionally to a whole nother level. Because right now, what anyone is doing is, is really staying at a very raw, underdeveloped, arrested development state of emotional maturity. Base level. Yeah. And, and this is a lot of what we dealt with as children. We're a little raw, emotional beings then that if we were never taught how to understand ourselves emotionally or were contained, you know, I, I really find that that's where my message is coming out the strongest is when I do a TikTok for men specifically, and they feel understood in a large group. That's so powerful to emotionally feel seen and understood and relate to everyone around you. I think this is what I'm talking about, where we're not hiding alone with our emotional issue or pain or not feeling anyone understands us. But now we can use this to kind of, I think, promote like an emotional, again, like evolution or coming out of the closet, you know? 100%. And I think too, like in terms of men, I, I can't remember who, who the stand-up comedian was that I saw a video of them talking online. Cause uh, and I'll, I'll tell, I'll tell you like the joke in a second, but in terms of men, like we need good, emotional, healthy men in our culture. It is not celebrated at all. There are examples of it. I would say someone like the rock or someone like Terry Crews are good examples of healthy masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically what this joke was is that when a woman is crazy, a she'll like key your car or something like that. But when a man is crazy, he tries to annihilate every Jewish person on the planet. And I think that that is a great example because like men, um, you know, just by like uh, statistics alone, like they are the ones that fill the prisons. They're the ones that commit the violent crime. And there are women who do that. But those are the the outliers. It's way fewer and far between. And we're in this culture where any masculinity is negative masculinity. Um, And I think that's like very damaging to young men. Oh, it's it's tremendous. I mean, we can kind of go down that road as as far as, you know, it's it's like seen as dangerous, your physicality. You know, and and again, the the capacity for aggression, and we're incredibly repressed society in general. Where you know, just now we're holding bullies accountable. You know, but you know, so there's a real grouping of of men where you know some boys are really extroverted and aggressive, and some are just really trying to be accepted and acceptable and fit in and and move along in life. And you know, I think this that group can't represent the whole anymore. Yes. And now we've left this large group of men out there kind of like, well, then what am I? I I'm not that. Who am I? And there's not the healthy role model and, and the role modeling. And so I think what's really being hidden though is now because men don't, I mean, they still have physical aggression, you know, as far as in domestic violence and I'm not taking that away, but 
Yes, women 100%. need to be held accountable for emotional violence and emotional abuse towards their children and towards their husbands. Yes, 100%. And this is something I feel like people are just starting to talk about. And it's for two recent examples. Mm -hmm. One is Will Smith. Oh, right. And two is the, the, the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Absolutely. And like, uh, one thing, like when the Will Smith, like Chris Rock incident happened, I think a lot of people had an initial gut reaction of Will Smith was wrong. And yes, he was, he should have never done that. But more and more started coming out of just like, this guy has been through a lot of trauma. You know what I mean? He's been through a lot of trauma. It's basically revealed. It was revealed that his wife was having an affair with their son's friend, you know, and like publicly for that to happen. I, I feel really bad for him. Like that should have been dealt with behind closed doors. There's videos of, her trying to pressure him to talk about stuff on social media while he's at home. He's like, I'm at home. I don't really want to talk about this right now. That's all emotional abuse. Absolutely. And, and whatever he, however he got into that situation with her and wasn't able to get out and the kinds of control you saw in that, even that moment. And I've seen other interactions that she's had with him that he's not, you know, there's some amount of control that she has over him that really has debilitated him. But he, at the same time, now this is the thing I want to say is like, wait a second, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean then to stand up for yourself? What does it mean to have self-respect? Like have, have men been stripped of their own self-respect? Because when I ask them why they don't talk to these women, because she's not the only one out there, they say, because I'm scared. I'm like, so it's okay for them to treat you that way and you just be scared? Well, yeah, because I think maybe, you know, I understand. I sympathize with her instead of empathize because I'm a fuck up too. Because my bad self-esteem, she can hone in on. So I get why she's mad with me. And I probably should just go ahead and, and, and keep taking it. Well, it's, it's putting another human being on that pedestal too. Yes. Which is, is never a good thing. And like... um. So the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp situation, I think the trial is still ongoing right now, but there was this audio clip that was released where Johnny Depp, he finally breaks down when he's on the phone with her. And he says, uh, basically I fell in love with the idea of you. And like this, this whole thing, he kind of goes into what we were talking about earlier. And, um, and that reminds me of the, uh, the nine inch nail song only. I don't know if you know that song. But, um, I mean, I think with that, like Trent Reznor was talking about his inner addict and he was exploring that whole thing, but right. that idea of taking something and putting it up on this pedestal, oh, uh, of, oh, this is true love or, oh, it makes me creative or, oh, this or, oh, that, um, is so damaging. And the moment that it sounded like he figured it out, referring to the video of Johnny Depp it sounded like he let the air out of the balloon and was just deflated where he was like, Oh fuck, this yeah. is what this was all along. Right. And that's, and, and I, and I do work with a lot of men that, you know, after the fact we need to really go through again, a process of grief and loss of an idea. I mean, we, our belief systems are real to us, but when we project them onto another human being, we have to be really careful. So there's there's so much there that 
you know, now it's a process of healing and reorganizing yourself. Again, hopefully integrating reality, like, and, and giving voice not to an idea that you want, but what you want as a person, and you got to do the work to figure out what that is. Sorry, that's like, I can't, I said, like, people are like, how, how, how? Well, you have to write it down. <laughs> like, oh. Well, you have to <laughs> figure out what your own personal values are and to kind of piggyback out off of what I was saying earlier with the the red flag movies and all of that that something like that is more of a personal value or personal taste it is not a, like a red flag in another human being like if they're calling you names and they're putting you down or they're getting physically violent with you or the way that they're interacting let's say something as as small as interacting with a server at a restaurant how they treat that server like the, those can be red flag, green flag situations. Right. And I think a lot of people, they don't even necessarily know what their personal values are. A hundred percent. And that's where we talk about the lack of boundaries and what, what I say about and what I put in the, even in like the cheat sheet is actually, you need to understand your own red flags when, when you. Interesting. Right? Yeah, like I, I like to know that because I'm not as confused. But if I become, you know, I can say if that person's acting erratic or that person made me feel really inferior with the waitress, what was that? Or that, per, you know, this is what, you know, I can I can also look at their behavior, but really look at behaviors and wonder. But I, you know, I think that this is the thing is that people don't have it like an organizing process. People haven't done necessarily again the work or have been guided through a process right like how do you know yourself you know values to me are talked about often but um i do think that's like it's not just i'm i want somebody that's loyal won't cheat on me you know i'm talking about a value is how you're going to show up into a relationship like i would like somebody i am somebody that um, would like to be able to see someone, you know, a few times a week and communicate a few times a day, but not all day, you know, or something yes. like that. Or, or I don't want, you know, something, you know, I want to see how you want to show up in a relationship. I want somebody who has some of my interests, but I would hope that the value is that they would be different from me. 100%. Like one thing I, I think that I, I knew this, like, even when I was a mess, Dating for me, I have no interest in dating another musician. I yeah. I want to go to a place in a relationship that's away from the things that I do because, like, I'm lucky. You know, my life is cool. I get to do fun stuff like the podcast or like music. And I knew from age, like, 18 on, like, I'm, I'm not going to date musicians. It's just not my bag. I, I have friends who do it, who date other musicians, and they do it well. And yeah. they figure out how to make it work. But I knew for me that it would never be something that I would be interested in. Yeah. But even in the short term. Right. And why? Why? I think, for one, I want to... I want to, like... I don't want my my work like i'm i'm can be really obsessed with it sometimes and i've had to figure out healthy boundaries with myself with it but like in particular i really enjoy working with female singer songwriters and mm -hmm. i'm good at it 
So there's that aspect too, where I never wanted a rumor of, oh, like, or uh, like a woman to be like, oh, he's just trying to sleep with me. That was a big thing for me. Hmm. Um, I want anybody I'm working with to feel respected as an artist, because that is how I see them. Two, in a relationship, I want to be able to separate and have my thing that I do that that's like what I'm passionate about in life. Because I feel like it would get messy for me boundary wise, especially because I know if I'm dating someone like I am a doer and I want to work on things always. And it's hard for me to say no to working on things because everything sounds fun. Mm-hmm. So like, as I've gotten older, I've, I've learned, like, I'm going to say no to this project right up front, because I don't have the time to do it. Yeah. Um, and again, like, and to, to kind of like, go off onto another tangent, the same thing we're talking about for dating and relationships, I think can also be said for your work relationships, they can be said yeah. to every aspect of life, of how you handle and deal with people. That's 100%. Um, so like I've had to use, like I produce people. So like mm-hmm. almost like an interview process, see if we are a good fit working with each other. Mm-hmm. Like, cause we might not be a good fit. Cause like the kind of thing, like pie in the sky, what I want to do as a producer, when I'm working with someone and helping them find a form of their best artistic self. Right. We might not even work on music right away. Like I might have them journal or I might have them meditate and then we're going to talk. And if it's a band, have them do something off together one day, like just all sorts of different things, you know? Yeah, actually, yeah, to see them as people acting outside of this, again, the thing that they're trying to do, perform, idolize, like you need to kind of see the other, it's like a, it's a dimension, Yes. I want to see another aspect of you and see how I relate to that. But I, I, I think that that's really valuable, again, for you to do for them, because you're not going to waste your time or theirs by trying to make something work. We, you know, we don't have any processes, you know, to figure out compatibility here, other than maybe like an interview process that's not creative, right? Do you know who Rick Rubin is? I maybe but not off the top. So of he's a famous music producer. He worked like he's famous for the Beastie Boys was like the yeah. first big thing he did. He worked with Johnny Cash. He did all of the Red Hot Chili Peppers biggest records. Wow. Um, but he has the, it's interesting to read people who have worked with him because he's worked with everybody from like Linkin Park, um, Slipknot. And everybody has a varying degree of what they think about him because he's very hands off. Mm -hmm. And there was this episode of this great TV show on FX called Dave. I don't know if you've heard of that, Mm -hmm. but the whole episode, Dave showed up to like this Rick Rubin retreat. He has this house and he makes him do all this stuff. He like makes him basically do like a version of therapy. He makes him get into this, uh, one of those deprivation tanks they give they give him like psychedelics and all of that and he has to confront all of these things within himself you know what i mean uh to get to that because so much of life is all this shit that happens to us and we're reacting to it. It, it, it it's the same artistically you have to strip all of that away and you have to find the true raw emotion and then that's when you start building something new mm-hmm 
Right, and that's really interesting. That's that's a very similar process, a little less, you know, a little less um, fun. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a little more fun. That that that's but that is the process to to strip all of this this these defense mechanisms, this trauma, the way you made sense, the, the the irrational emotional way you made sense of the world, and then get down to something so you can have something new. And now there's actually potential because you've offloaded all this crap. And then I think you can find values like you're talking about. And I asked you why, you know, you wouldn't date a you know, musician because I heard in your like description of things, you know, your values are integrity, uh, respect, Absolutely. boundaries, and that's mutual. Yeah. It's, it's values are mutual. They're not something that's just yours and you're coveting. Also, I want to have a, a thing for myself that's not something that you like get to have. You know, I want something for myself. Great. And you have something for yourself. Yes, exactly. And that's mm-hmm. the other the other side of it that I didn't really say, but you filled in the blank. Like dating, I never want to date someone where I am the main center of focus. Mm-hmm. It would drive me wild. Like if I could feel someone waiting, like waiting for me to text back or waiting for me to call or waiting for, I couldn't handle that. Like I, I want to feel like a good relationship in my mind is when two individuals come together for common goals in life. Right. And want to. And want to. Yes. I want to be in this relationship. Not, oh my God, I need to, I have to. Oh, should I? I, I, that's so powerful. I want to show I want to be in this relationship is like paradigm shift again for most people. And, and not that you have, you're, you know, again, on a dating app because I'm supposed, I, I'm single and I'm supposed to be with somebody or I'm lonely and I should go find someone, you know, there are so many other ways of dealing with loneliness other than getting on a dating app. Oh yeah, no, for sure. It's like, you could be, I think oftentimes too, people are seeking out something in a relationship that they can get from other areas in their life, either through friendship or through relationship with parents, with family, all of that. Yeah. And I, I think that I've, I read this recently and it's been reinforced that, um, you know, what is undermined during the time in young adulthood when people do naturally transition towards relationships more and towards an idea of a family because of procreation age. Again, it's a little bit of our evolution here. Maybe that's being installed somewhat, but you know, that, that shift doesn't need to bring in devaluing of friendships. Friendships, actually what we're finding need to stay as important during marriages. We understand that, you know, juggling kids and all of the stuff is, is more, you know, challenging during that time, but still, still having that, you know, whatever vacation with the guys or doing this over here or having that, you know, to keep yourself balanced and not, you know, regressed in some sort of space where now it's just you and the other person. And that's, so there we're finding that people started to like really not have friendships and really put too much pressure on the, the The relationship. Yeah. And they can't, can't do it yeah it just something like that implodes too because you're taking all of this energy from other areas of life and it's like a toothpick that's under ten thousand pounds of pressure 
Um, I would love to chat with you all day. I feel like we could talk for another three hours, but I won't keep you any longer. Um, but where can people find you at? Yeah, so I do. I mean, the the point of I'm like therapist on the mission. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me as far I have an emotional warrior um, membership. So I have this forum that as you know, I started the forum with a lot of things, a lot of cool things where I have master classes. I've done my own guided meditations for specifically for people with, trying to recover from codependency and those types of thoughts. Um, there are other interactive lectures and there's, uh, yeah, there's other good stuff there and worksheets. Yeah. And so there's, it's like a self-learning platform. And I also interact with the group and do coaching calls. So it's like this place people can go and pay monthly if you're more into the self-learning pace and you want to work with me somewhat, but not one-on-one. Um, so that's biancagrace.com. Um, I also offer sessions. I mean, obviously they're a little bit more expensive and that, you know, there's a process to go through to see if that works out, but that's biancagracetherapy.com. And I think really, um, and I have emotional warrior radio podcast and I do this like Esther Perel a little, not a lot. Like I really work with people. Like I'm having a, you know, a session with them. I don't say their name and it's not, there's only audio, but if somebody wants to do that, I really felt like listening to that process with people that are trying to overcome codependency or some sort of relationship issue or setting boundaries, that situation they're going through is applicable to so many other people's lives that there is information in there that you can start to kind of activate those types of processes in yourself. So the the podcast has sessions and you got to follow them in order to, you know, you don't pop into like one that you want. I think it's best to listen to them all the way through like session one, two, three, four. Interesting. So, yeah. And if anybody wants to do that, I have an application application process, but there hasn't been as many people that want to do it now. So I don't know. We'll see. I think it's, I think it's really, it's been super helpful for the people that did it, but you know, you have to be willing to open up on, yeah. on air. So which can be super uncomfortable. I mean, I, I've, I've made a life of it doing it so far, but yeah, um, Hey, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh yes, absolutely. And the last thing is if they want the dating cheat sheet, go to biancagrace.com awesome. and then it'll be there. You can sign up for it and it'll go to you with your email. Cool. Great. Okay. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.